Lord, it's nice to know that we stand upon the rock, the cornerstone of all creation. And so, Lord, with that, we we lift up this service to you and we, we give it to you. It was yours to begin with. And it's only right and reasonable that we we hand it back to you. And, and Lord, I, I give you back your words today and ask nothing but that you speak to the people here and, and that you keep me out of the way. So, Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you prepare them for your truth and for your teaching? And would you help us to walk out of here, change people today? And, Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. It's all always exciting time, right? With the, with the new year, we, we look forward to the spring when all the flowers will be blooming and all the new life of, of animals and things around us. And it's an incredible opportunity to look forward and to see and anticipate what God is going to do with us and through us over the next 11 and three quarters months and until we have a chance to come back again here. And so it's, it's with that concept and it's with that thought that, that it's always exciting for me to open the Word. It's always exciting to dig into God's Word because there's something new for me every time. There's, there's things that God has, has yet to teach me that He's just waiting until the right moment to teach me so that I might be able to learn and better understand. And, and this is no different. So this passage today in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, as we finish up chapter 4, is the same thing. It's exciting to see what God's doing. And, and it's interesting to look forward and, and to think about things and, and to, to contemplate. Now, how many of you this morning, before you left the house, checked either the outside temperature or the weather report for the day? There's a few of you. There's a few of you who, who look forward. If you're going to go see a movie this weekend, how many of you checked the paper or the website to find out what time the movie was showing? Right? Isn't it nice to know what to expect? Isn't it nice to know what's ahead of you? Isn't it good to be able to prepare for what's coming up so that you might not be caught off guard? That you might not be the one who shows up at the movie five minutes after it ends. Or, or you're not the one who dresses like Chris Richards today because he forgot to look at the weather report. <laughs> right? Isn't it nice to know what to plan for? Well, Peter's doing that for the believers. He's helping them look ahead. He's helping them to see what's going to be coming their way. He's preparing them. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. He doesn't want them to show up to be persecuted, not having been prepared for it. So we remember back of when Peter's writing this. It was either just before or just after the burning of Rome by Nero. And the persecution was just going to ramp up. So they, the Christians were going to see persecution that they had never seen before at this point in time. And Peter realized this. The Holy Spirit had given Peter these things to write to the people so that he might prepare them. So I've talked about this is don't be surprised or, 
or in essence, the spoiler for the movie. You know, how many times would you sit down with somebody and they start talking about a movie that you want to see, right? And they tell you the whole plot. Isn't that just a horrible thing? When there's something that you don't want somebody to spoil for you, we hate it. But on the other hand, when it prepares us for something that's coming up, we love it. Well, in this case, Peter was giving them a glimpse into the future that that was going to help them be prepared. You notice Peter wasn't saying to these folks, look, I just want you to know that if you go down this road and turn right, bad things are going to happen, so make sure you turn left. He wasn't telling them there's an escape route. I've got the path. I can tell you how to stay out of the persecution. Rather, what Peter was saying is persecution is going to happen. You are going to be persecuted. So let's prepare for it and see what it looks like. So we start in, in verse 12. We can really break down these verses from 12 to 19 into four major areas. The first one, Peter is basically telling them, expect persecution. It's going to happen. He says to them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. He said, look, guys, I have been telling you throughout this entire letter. If you look at every chapter of 1 Peter, what is he telling people? Be prepared. You're going to suffer. Be prepared. You're going to suffer. They needed to hear this over and over so that they could better understand what was going to happen. It's really cool to look, though, and see that God has a plan for all of this, and it's a testing. And and he says here, he doesn't say, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes to destroy you. He said, I'm going to test you. I'm going to sharpen you a little bit. I'm going to purify you a little by adding some heat. I'm going to float off the impurities. You know, it's an interesting deal. We talk often about how the cream comes to the top of milk, right? Have you ever heard that saying? The cream comes to the top. Inherently discussing about the very best comes to the top. Well, in all reality, if we're under a purification process, guess where the impurities come to? The top. Take some metal, melt it down, and watch where the impurities end up. Always at the surface. And, and the impurities then burn up as you get the metal hot enough to get rid of them. That's how we end up with 99.99% pure gold. Is they heat it up to a point where all the impurities burn. Well, this is what Peter's telling these guys. This is, this is what's coming. The heat's going to be turned up. But this is to, to help you. It's to test you. It's not to destroy you. But it's to get rid of some impurities that you're carrying along with you. And we have to do this before the real ordeals hit. Otherwise, it's going to be much more difficult for you to get through them. So don't worry. It's for your testing, not for your ruin. We're going to talk about the ruin part later in the chapter when it talks about the unbelievers. But Peter's saying to you believers, those of you who are followers of Christ, the heat's going to get turned up. Be prepared for that. We see in 1 John 3.13, talks again about not being surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. So, so John was trying to get the point across. We'll see later where Paul's trying to get the point across, and Peter's trying to get the point across. Now I'm trying to get the point across, right? The point is there will be testing. 
and there will be challenges. And all of this is to help us get stronger. And then this, I love the way he puts it in here, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You ought to know already this is coming. This isn't by chance. This didn't just happen to fall out of the sky on you. This was planned. This is ready. This is for the perfection of you. As we move on to verses 13 and 14, Peter tells us to do something that is absolutely and completely unnatural to us. He says, don't be surprised in verse 12. This is going to happen. And in verse 13, he says, prepare your heart to rejoice in it. Now, how many of you jump up and down at the thought of being persecuted? I can't believe nobody raised their hand. Me either. I'm not all that terribly excited about it. It's not something I yearn for, but I think I probably should. I I really believe after reading through this, I ought to look forward to it. Why in the world should we look forward to persecution? Why should we do that? Peter told us one thing in verse 12, because it tests us. It helps to bring us and get rid of our impurities. But what else does it do? This is something that's really important. Why? One of the reasons we should rejoice in the opportunity to be persecuted is who do you think shines when we respond rightly to persecution? In us. But it's God. God shines through us when we respond rightly to persecution. What an incredible opportunity it is. Do you guys know anybody who needs to see Christ through you? There's people all around us who need to see Jesus. And we're going to bring him to them. It never looks more beautiful than with the right response to persecution. That's as good as it possibly gets. Anybody can look good when things are going well. All of us can look like superstars when when we're being increased, when we have more, when when, when everything is in excess. We can look good. But for those who can shine through persecution, Christ is like a blinding beacon to the unbeliever and draws them to Him. So He says, Rejoice. Don't be surprised. Rather, rejoice. So He says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You know, We don't like to be persecuted. We don't like to suffer. We don't like to be wronged. We like people to treat us well. We like people to be fair to us. We like to get our due. When we work a hard day, we expect to be compensated for working a hard day. When we do things well, we expect to be recognized for doing things well. That's just the way we are. It's what comes with us. And and it's all good to do those things. But when when we compare ourselves to Christ, and that's what Peter's saying, so... Just remember, you're sharing the sufferings of Christ when you're persecuted here. Did did Jesus do all things right when he walked the earth? Did Jesus always put others before him when he walked the earth? Did Jesus sin when he walked the earth? No, he did all things perfect. And how many of us have suffered to one one-hundredth of what Christ suffered? 
How many of us have shed one single drop of blood? So when you put it in perspective, we ought to rejoice. Because again, we're being tested, we're being tested for, to help to purify us, not to our ruin. And if we remember that, and we remember how much Christ suffered on our behalf, we should rejoice in that. That's what Peter's trying to get across here. And the, the fun part about this is that Peter doesn't just say rejoice. He says, keep on rejoicing. It suggests we should never stop. There should never be a moment before, during, or after the persecution that we stop rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing intimates it's consistent and constant. Always. He talks about rejoicing with exaltation. I mean, that's rejoicing. We're not just rejoicing a little bit. We have a little bit of a smile. We sing a couple of songs and we feel good about ourselves. And we, we sing, maybe we even yell out a Hosanna here or there. It's, we're talking about rejoicing with exaltation. I'm not sure what that is, but I don't think it's me. But it needs to be me. The world should be able to see me rejoicing in exaltation. What are some little ways that that looks like? Right? How many of you always greet everybody with a smile as wide as your face? Why don't we? I mean, seriously, who has more to smile about than the believer? Who has more to smile about than us? How can we possibly not offer a smile so big that it captures everybody that interacts with us? How can we not do that? What, what do we have? Why do we want to hide that light within us? Why do we do that? We need to rejoice with exaltation. In James 1, 2 and 3, James is saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Right? If you want to get good at something, what do you do? You practice it. Right? Let's all practice a smile. Right? You can all do it. Look at that. I saw everybody in here smile. There's no excuse now. We practiced. Now I want you to be exercising that regularly. Do you realize that it actually is a cop-out to smile because it takes less energy and less muscle used to smile than to frown? So you actually can take a little bit of a lightweight perspective here and smile more than you frown, and the positives are innumerable with that. Paul in Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Do you hear what Paul just said here? Paul said something that I think most of us like to run from. We don't want to be persecuted, period. But, but what Paul said here is, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings, and I'm actually rejoicing in the fact that I can suffer for those things Christ didn't even get to suffer for while he was here. Because not everybody got to beat on Christ. So Paul says, here I am, do it. I rejoice in it because do you see that it proves my identity and my Savior? Go ahead, give me your best shot. Because you can't take away my salvation and my trust in the Lord. Go ahead and try. And I'm not only going to take it, I'll rejoice in it. Do you think that will throw people off? 
Do you think when people persecute you that it will throw them off when you smile and offer love back? Do you think it will make them want to know how you can do that? Do you think it might draw them closer to the Lord to see that? So Paul's talking about here. And in Philippians, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It goes right back to this concept of keep on rejoicing. When should we not rejoice? There's not a point in time. We are to be about rejoicing. It sets us apart. It puts us in a position to shine Christ for those who desperately need him. And what better time as we start into a new year for us to look at all those people around us and show how we are rejoicing to them. In verse 14, he says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We're reviled when we are treated unfairly and, and insulted because we identify with Christ. That's what it's talking about here. You're reviled for the name of Christ. I identify with Jesus Christ. I am a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ. That's who I am. That is my makeup. That is my identity. I have other jobs that I do, but my identity is I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And when the world insults me for that, that brings glory to God. Because I willingly accept that, and I willingly acknowledge the fact that that's who I am and that's what I'm about. When we're blessed, it's not just this little happiness. Gee, I feel blessed today. I feel good today uh, and, and stuff. It's a, a benefit here of being identified with Christ. And one of the most beautiful pictures of this for me in the Bible is Stephen in Acts. It's my favorite story of the whole Bible other than the part where Christ died for my sins. But, but, but of any story of a person in the Bible, the story of Stephen is my personal favorite. It is the one that, that I look to and say, God, someday I want to have faith like that. And if we go to Acts chapter 6, we get a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be persecuted for the name of Christ. And we'll start with verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicily and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze upon him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. And then it goes on. To have, they ask Stephen some hard and difficult questions. In, in all of chapter 7, he draws them back to the Old Testament, right? This Moses that he was supposedly blaspheming, he quotes verbatim over and over and over and shows these guys what they did. And, of course, by the end of chapter 7, they have stoned and killed Stephen. 
And what does he do? Right? This man's rejoicing. You talk about rejoicing. And they went on stoning him as he called upon the Lord and said, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do you think that spoke to these folks? Do you think there were a few people who became followers of Christ through this? That's such a beautiful picture of a man who was persecuted to death. They lied about him. They brought in false witnesses in order to persecute and to make him look wrong. And did he ever say, you guys need to stop doing this, it's making me mad. I feel underappreciated here. No, he just kept quoting the Bible back to these guys. And he stood there with a smile on his face, that that looked like an angel, and said, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And you may stone me. That's okay. Because I am not going to renounce him for you. You have to believe that if he would have renounced Christ, these guys wouldn't have stoned him. If he would have said, you're right, bad choice, (laughs) sorry, I was just kidding, just joking. But but he didn't. He said, no, no, I'm here. You had to believe he knew what was coming. But he did it anyways. He accepted it because he knew that his identity was in Christ Jesus. So not only should you expect persecution, you should rejoice in the fact that somebody cares enough to persecute you because it will sharpen you and help to purify you that you wouldn't get if nobody persecuted you. So you should rejoice. And how often? All the time. Always, incessantly, and continuously. In verses 15 and 16, Peter says to these believers, it's not a bad idea, however, to evaluate the cause of your persecution. Why are you being persecuted? Because there are some issues amongst you. There are some of you who are being persecuted, but not for the reasons Christ was was persecuted. In verse 15, By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. In that name of being a Christian. You know, we all understand the concept of murderers or thieves or evildoers, right? We, we're, none of us are that, so that's a good part. You know, none of us would fit into that. But what about this troublesome meddler concept? And if you translate this, it, it really probably translates better or more understandably for us as a busybody in other people's matters. The problem is, I, I'm pretty confident that we don't have anybody that's been a murderer in here. Uh, thieves, perhaps, some small things. Evildoers, yeah, but, you know, this whole troublesome meddler, maybe, maybe we can put a stamp of that on more of us than we'd like to see. But he, it's, it's this whole concept of look carefully. If you're being persecuted because you're doing the wrong things, take it, accept it, change your art, change your attitude, and next time you're persecuted, make sure it's because of the right things, because you're doing the proper thing. Verse 16 where he said, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. 
Do you realize that Christian, the term Christian was not a positive term? In fact, is it was a derisive term that was used for the followers of Christ. Right? This was the unbeliever's way of, of sort of giving you a bad name, of, of providing you a name that was not appealing. It was negative, not only because you were a follower of Christ, but it was a, just it was like a, 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 calling you a swear word. But the believers took this, what was meant to be bad, and said, you know what? We accept the term Christian because it identifies us for you, non-believers, with whom I follow. So you call me a Christian because I'm a follower of Christ, and you meant it for bad, but I'm going to embrace the name because I want you to know I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a believer. So I identify with Jesus. So go ahead and call me a Christian. So they embraced this term, actually. Acts 11.26 was the first time we heard the word Christian used in in the time. It was the first time they discussed people being Christian. And it's an interesting perspective. It wasn't a positive thing. We now, we, obviously, those of us who are believers, look at it as a very positive thing. I am a Christian. But the world at the time used it as a very derogatory name for the people. Verses 17 and 18, we continue evaluating the cause of persecution. And this gets to be some tough stuff here in looking at this. And it gets to, I think for me, was a little more challenging to understand. So verse 17, for it is, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And verse 18, and, and if it is with difficulty that a righteous is, is saved, what will become of a godless man and a sinner? So Peter here is quoting out of Proverbs uh, chapter 11, verse 31. So he first paraphrases it, and then he quotes it verbatim. Uh, and, and here we're, we're looking at, at this idea of judgment. And, you know, I think we sometimes, I get confused as what, what does the judgment mean? What, what, what does it mean? We hear about judgment for non-believers and and that makes sense to me. That's a good thing, right? All people who don't call upon the name of the Lord, since I have, should be judged. That's a, I look at that as a positive deal. But, but that's not what Peter says here. Peter says that we're going to be judged as well. And I'm not nearly as comfortable with that as I am with the non-believers being judged. And so I, I looked into this a little bit deeper. And, and the, the, again, the terminology of judgment here is is really not condemnation and that's where the difference rises the judgment for the non-believer is condemnation the judgment for the believer is not condemnation but really it's a purging a chastening a purifying so again think of think of of the of metal and and you've got this gold that you take out of the ground and you heat it up and, and that's what's happening to us as believers. So in our raw state, and Christ purifies us. He heats us up. He melts us down. And, and then he burns off the surface by the heat of, that, that we need in order to melt the gold down into a liquid form. So when we're done then, and he takes that away, we're, we're shiny and we're beautiful and we're his. We reflect him. When, when we're talking about the judgment of the non-believer... The heat just keeps going until it's all burnt up. You can burn up gold. Did you know that? You can actually get a fire hot enough to burn gold into nothing. It goes away. 
That's the difference here, as best I can tell. The judgment for us is not to condemn us. It's to, it's to help to purify us so that we can go to heaven, because we can't do that otherwise. The other interesting thing is that if you go back through the Old Testament, it's pretty common that when God brought calamity down upon whole people groups, you know where he started? He started with the Jews, the Israelites. If you go to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, God's talking here. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. He did business with the Israelites first, right? He went in there and he did business with their hearts. And then he moved on to the others. So we have, we have evidence here that God will deal with us first. In Jeremiah 25, 29, For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city which is called by my name, and you shall be completely free, and shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. We are not going to escape the sharpening, the, the, the punishment. But when you have called upon the name of the Lord for your salvation, when you bent your knee to him, you escape condemnation. And there's a big difference from there. There are many who say that these verses here point out the concept or the difference that we will see at the end times. When, when Christ comes back again and, and the end of the earth as we know it, as we see, it shows that, that while we are going to suffer and be persecuted, some to the point of death, like Stephen, for example, and, and, and the disciples, Paul was another one, and Peter. And, and we, there are people being martyred today. There will be people martyred today. While we will suffer punishment, or will suffer persecution in this time, it is nothing compared to what those who do not bend their knee to God will suffer at the end time. And people look at this as a picture into what that will look like and realizing the difficulties, the challenges, the stonings, the hanging on crosses upside down in Peter's case is really a demonstration of the unspeakable things that will happen to those who don't bend their knee to the Savior in the end times. So the whole idea here is to evaluate carefully. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 4 through 10. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. 
This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may consider it worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. That's such a beautiful story, right? I love that. It's just it's just the indication that, you know what, you're going to be persecuted Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice in it. Be thankful because it sets you apart. Your response to the persecution sets you apart. It is not up to us to repay those who persecute us with persecution back. Nowhere in here does Peter say, or did Paul say to the Thessalonians, don't worry, you'll get your due. You'll get your chance. You'll have the opportunity. He says, no, you're going to be persecuted. Smile, rejoice. Be a shining beacon, and don't worry. God will take care of things. It's not for you to worry about. Don't worry about repaying evil for evil. Worry about shining Him. And in verse 19, as we finish up, finally entrust your persecution to God. And Peter says as he finishes this section, Therefore, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So to entrust is 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 essentially a banking term like commit, where you're going to deposit something for safekeeping. So what Peter's telling us here is entrust your soul, commit your soul, put it in the hands of the Savior, in the faithful creator in doing what is right. It's it just helps us to remember we were created by Jesus. He created us in our mother's womb. And we're giving our souls back to him, but he had them to begin with. He gave them to us to use for a while. We're giving them back when we trust him in our salvation. You see, the unwillingness to trust Christ in salvation, in essence, is saying... I don't trust you, God, to to keep my soul. I don't trust you to protect me. I don't trust you for what you promise me that can become true with salvation. So when we withhold our souls from him by being unwilling to accept salvation, we're telling him we don't trust you. We don't trust what you have to offer. And that's one of the things Peter's trying to say is, don't be like that. Your creator knows you better than anybody. It's like the pot saying to the potter, you sure did a horrible job. I'm not going to let you touch me again. Uh, We can't be about that. We need to be giving ourselves back to God because we are his. So what does it look like as we bring things to, to completion here? Some attitudes that we need to have. Expect persecution. It's going to happen. Most of us will be persecuted very little. Most likely. There are people in the, the believers 
today that are being persecuted maximally. There will be people who will die today because of their faith. There will be people who will willingly give up their life because they acknowledge and identify with the Savior. We need to understand we're going to see similar portions. We just don't know how much. It could be all the way to giving our life. It may be significantly less, but it will be just right. The amount of persecution we will suffer will be just perfect to provide us with the means to become sharpened, to become more reflective of the Savior, to become more pure for our Savior. We ought to rejoice in the persecution. We, we ought to walk out of here today looking forward to being persecuted because it cements our identity. It seals our identity with the Savior. When the world persecutes us for doing what is right, there is a great big stamp on you that says, I belong to Jesus. Go ahead. When you're persecuted for doing what is wrong, the thieves, the murderers, the meddlesome folks, that does not put a stamp on you. That, it often looks like the stamp of the world, not the stamp of Christ. So we ought to not only rejoice in the persecution that's going to befall us, we ought to look forward to it. We should anticipate it. We should yearn for it because nothing shows that we're his better than we respond rightly to being wrongly persecuted. Just like Jesus. I mean, think of all the opportunities he had to call fire down among all these people that were torturing him. I mean, when you think about it, look at all the times in the Old Testament that God just took care of the issue, right? The folks that went out and they took over this people and they brought back all the things even after God said, don't bring any plunder back, and they did anyways. He opened up the earth, swallowed them, put it back like it, no, they never existed. They were just gone, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. We, it, they were destroyed in, in, in fiery hail. Jesus could have done that to the people that were persecuting him. He had the power to do that. He didn't. Because he knew that if he did, we would have no hope. So he was willing to accept persecution for us today. So that some 2,000 years later, we could call upon his name and we could be saved. We should be very careful to evaluate why we're being persecuted. We should never let it be that anyone can say bad things about our actions. They couldn't lie about the bad things, but they should never be right. Should never, ever give the world fodder to accuse us of being wrong. But we do it every day. We have to be so careful with that. I mean, this is something I know in my life I have to struggle with on a daily basis. It's easy to get caught up in the hallway chatter. It's easy to get caught up in the, yeah, did you know about something? No, they did this, and that's, oh, can you believe it? It's easy to be there. We have to remember that when we're there, we're emissaries of Christ to these people. And when we buy into where they are and what they're doing, We're not very good emissaries. Who would want to have us as their emissary when we're no different? If you can't see any difference between me and the world, I have some issues I need to work on. 
that we're all in different stages in our lives there. We're all in different stages of our purification and our sanctification. So we're all going to look different. It's not for me to point out to you guys where you have some problems. It's for each of us to go before the Lord and find out where do I have issues. God, where are you trying to teach me to be more the man I need to be in my home? In the church, where I work, in my neighborhood, my extended family. What should that look like? I need to be going as you need to be going before the Lord and asking him, please help me to see these spots where I'm being persecuted rightly, not wrongly. And help me, Lord, to walk away from those. I don't want that baggage. Why in the world do I hold on to the things of the world? Why do I do that? I don't understand. I, 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 I understand Paul completely when he says, I don't do what I should do and I do do what I shouldn't do and I hate myself for that. I hate it when, when I have a wrong thought. I hate it when I get sucked into hallway chatter. I hate it when I start it. Right? I'd love to tell you I have never started a hallway chatter problem. But then I'd have two problems because I'd have lied to you. And, and I just, I need to hate that part of my life and I need to put it away. We need to spend some more time thinking about that in our lives. Preparing. Expect it. Figure out how you're going to rejoice through it. I really believe Peter, when he's talking to us about this and he gives us this line of expecting, rejoicing, evaluating, and entrusting, he's really trying to help us understand that it's going to happen, but nobody should be able to tell a difference in you when it happens. Because you should be the same before, during and after the persecution. You should shine Christ. You should be rejoicing anyway. People should just look at you and say, look at that, he doesn't change. He does the same thing when we persecute him as when we were lifting him up. When we were rewarding him for being such a good whatever, he looks the same as when we now persecute him. Start now in your rejoicing, anticipating the persecution so that you can entrust God with it. Start rejoicing now. Practice that smiling. Go ahead. Right? I identify with Jesus Christ. I entrust my soul to Jesus. I entrust whatever he has before me with him. Because I can't stop it. I can only respond rightly to it. And that's what Peter's trying to tell these guys. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13... Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Not exactly a persecution verse, but I believe that this embodies what God is like for us. He will never give us more than we can handle when we rely on him. He will constantly give us more than we can handle on our own. Because we should never be trying to do this on our own. And he's going to help us understand that. He's going to put us in a position where we get to where we need to get to. 
so that He can shine and glorify through us. There are a lot of people right now who desperately need to hear this good news of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not because the economy seems to be failing. It's not because there are wars and rumors of wars. It's because, frankly, we just need Jesus, and we've needed Jesus since the dawn of time. Nothing has really changed. We get more stressed. We might be more concerned. But the reality is, the same number of people need Jesus today that needed him last year when the Dow was at 14,000. It doesn't make any difference. We have to be those people who are shining brightly. And we're going to be persecuted for it. In Australia, they call this a tall poppy syndrome. We lived in Australia for a year. It was a fantastic experience. But they talk about the tall poppy syndrome. And the concept is, if you look out about on a field of poppies, you want them all to be even. And if one of them stands up above the other, you know what they did to it? Cut it off. We want to be those people people are trying to chop down. Because we stand up so bright, and we stand up so tall... And we identify completely with Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, whom with we can withstand any persecution and any temptation and any struggle and any difficulty that might come before us. We want to be those people that are unmistakably Christ's. As if he put a stamp on my forehead that said, yes, I belong to Jesus. Go ahead and ask me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you so much for for giving me the opportunity to study through it and to seek you out through it and to, to try to understand you better. Lord, I so appreciate the fact that you are growing me, that you are changing me, and that you are, are drawing me closer to yourself. And I... I just pray that you will make that real to all of us here today. Lord, we know in your word that you tell us persecution is coming. For some of us, it's already here. For some, there are already struggles and challenges. And the concept of rejoicing in the face of persecution, especially, Lord, when there's no rhyme nor reason because we've not done anything wrong, is so hard. But yet, Lord, it helps me so much to understand it's by that that you, you show our identity with you. So, Lord, please would you continue to turn the heat up on us to, to make us more like Jesus. And we entrust, Lord, this day and every day to you. And we entrust our souls to you and everything we have to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.